everyone. Welcome to episode 54 of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray. So this week, as well as the usual roundup of vulnerabilities and security fixes that the team has done for the week, uh, Joe and I thought it would be interesting to have a discussion around uh, getting into InfoSec. So uh, Joe was recently at the uh, product sprint in uh, Vancouver for Canonical and actually had a bunch of people there ask him about you know tips on getting into InfoSec and how they were interested in uh, exploring more about InfoSec. So we thought it would be an interesting topic uh, to have a talk about. So yeah, we'll be having a chat about that uh, coming up in a while. But first, let's get into the week's security updates. So this week, uh, there were 89 different CVEs that were addressed by the team. Uh, a bunch of these include some stuff that I talked about last week, uh, but yeah, let's get into it. So the first one is in uh, DPDK. Uh, this was one CVE that was fixed for uh, Bionic, that's the 1804 long-term support release, plus Disco and Eowyn, the two uh, more recent uh, standard support releases. Uh, this is the data plane development kit and uh, it was found that there was a possible memory and file descriptor leak that could be triggered by a malicious master or if you had a container that had access to the vhost user socket for dpdk and uh, the idea here i guess is because you have this leak that can be triggered uh, via a you know some malicious actor that they could then create a denial of service as a result so yeah that has been fixed though as i say in those releases we also released an update for libjpeg turbo, uh, a common uh, JPEG handling library. Uh, four different CVEs that were fixed for this uh, in Xenial, Bionic, and Disco. Uh, that's the two long-term support releases plus uh, Disco, the last uh, or you know the less recent <laughs> short-term support release. Uh, so two of these were uh, heat buffer overflows, so you know writes to a buffer on the heap or past the end of the buffer, should I say? And so that's the kind of thing. Obviously, you can get a crash because you'll get a uh, you know a write outside of a valid memory area, and so it could be outside of the mapped pages, so you get a segmentation fault, and that will crash the process. But it could also get uh, code execution because as you can corrupt the heap metadata you may then be able to yeah, get other uh, code or change the control flow of the program as a result and there was also two uh, heap buffer overreads so these are just reading past the end of a buffer and so that uh, because you're just dereferencing an invalid or memory outside of the mapped regions you will just get a segmentation fault there there's no way you can use that to actually change the control flow of the process as I say, they have been fixed for libjpeg turbo. So if you were handling untrusted JPEGs, you're now a bit safer. We updated uh, the kernel as well. So last week I talked about a bunch of different CVEs that were fixed in uh, the various kernels across the supported Ubuntu releases. So this week we had an extra update. That was because uh, one of the CVEs that was fixed last week, the fix was incomplete. So that was uh, CVE 2019-0155. This was uh, the uh, Intel i915 graphics driver uh, Blitter command streamer. The idea here was that you could use this Blitter command streamer, part of the uh, graphics API essentially, to uh, you know, overwrite other kernel memory and so potentially elevate your privileges or uh, you know expose kernel memory, that kind of thing. And the reason this was incomplete was because it was based on uh, sort of an earlier revision of the patch. Uh, so there was a, a bunch of patches actually that were used to fix this and one of them was found at the last minute to uh, be incomplete. So it used a, a bit mask to define uh, various allowed commands that could be performed uh, in this Blitter command streamer. And part of the fix for this is to you know, disallow certain commands. And so you have a bit mask then of what is the allowed ones and this is zeroed out using memset 
Uh, but the problem was that the underlying size of that bitmask is different sized on different platforms. So on say 32-bit, it's uh, you know 32 bits for each of those elements, but on 64-bit it's 64 bits, and yet the memset was assuming it was only 32-bit sized. So what you would end up doing then is only zeroing out half the buffer on a 64-bit platform, and so you would then have you know, other elements inside the bit, uh, inside this you know, allowed bitmask that would then be allowed, even though you're meant to be denying them essentially. And so it meant that this whitelist would uh, not be complete, and so you know they could actually have this vulnerability still be able to be uh, used. But as I say, that has been fixed now for Eowyn. And so we also released that fix for the other uh, releases. So we updated the kernel for Disco, that's uh, f uh, based on the upstream 5.0 kernel, and that's also used as the hardware enablement kernel for Bionic. And so as I say, that rolled in that um, Blitter command streamer fix. Plus, it also included a fix for a regression that was in last week's kernel. In this case, if you had uh, KVM guests with extended page tables disabled, they would fail to launch. And so we've included a fix for that as well. We updated the kernel in Bionic, that's a 4.14 kernel. And that is also the uh, hardware enablement kernel for the Xenial release. And again, that included both the uh, extra fix for the i915 Blitter command stream vulnerability and this KVM regression. And we updated the kernel in Xenial as well. So that was just for the i915 vulnerability as well. So yeah, a bunch of kernel updates as well to uh, address those other issues. The team also updated QMU, so five different CVEs that were fixed in uh, Trusty Extended Security Maintenance, which is 1404 Extended Security Maintenance, uh, Xenial 1604 Long-Term Support, uh, Bionic 1804 Long-Term Support, and Disco, which is 1904, and EON 1910. Two of these, there was a heap buffer overflow and a possible use after free in the uh, Slope networking implementation. So both of these were denial of service because you could crash QMU in the host, but you could possibly get code execution as well because you can uh, manipulate uh, the heap memory as I was talking about earlier. Uh, there was also a vulnerability where the uh, bridge helper didn't validate interface names. So they have to be within the ifnam size um, hash defined because that's used as part of a, a structure length. And because it didn't validate that, you could run past that. And so you could therefore end up bypassing access control list restrictions as a result. There was a null pointer to your reference that was fixed in the QXL para-virtual graphics driver. So again, the kind of thing you could get a denial of service out of. And there was also a possible CPU-based denial of service that was fixed. Uh, in this case, there was an infinite loop that might be able to be triggered in the LSI SCSI adapter emulator uh, based on how it was parsing the command stream. And so they all were fixed for uh, QMU. We updated image magic. So Image Magic is one of those packages that has lots of different CVEs. Uh, it's not as proliferant in terms of the number of updates that we do for it, but often when we do an update, we roll in a lot of different fixes at once. In this case, there were 30 different CVEs that were addressed in this update, and this was done for uh, Xenial, Bionic, Disco, and Eowyn. And yeah, the usual kind of issues that we fix for Image Magic, you know, it's a C, a bunch of different C libraries, really, and applications for handling images. So they're parsing, you know, various complicated formats. And being in C, you get your usual kind of, uh, you know, memory corruption issues and that kind of thing. So the kind of things that result in denial of service uh, vulnerabilities or remote code execution vulnerabilities as well. Uh, and so you know, you just need to be displaying or processing malicious images as a result. 
And uh, so to say, they were all fixed for image magic, which is great, but it is interesting to see uh, how, I guess, this reputation for vulnerabilities is being noticed. So uh, some applications, in particular Emacs, uh, they used to automatically link against image magic to handle various image formats automatically. And in the latest development version of that, 27.0.5, uh, uh, they've disabled that now by default. So it won't automatically link against image magic because of, uh, I guess, the concern around the various vulnerabilities it kept getting found in image magic and that that could be leveraged against Emacs as a result. So yeah, just interesting to know. We had an update for GhostScript. So this is one that I've mentioned in so many episodes, I actually can't keep count anymore. I could go back and count them, but I haven't. Uh, yeah, so this was fixed for Xenial, Baric, Disco and Eowyn. As we've seen with all the different vulnerabilities in GhostScript in the past year or so, these are all uh, bypasses of the uh, dash D safer sandbox that is built into GhostScript. So because PostScript is a you know, proper programming language, essentially, you know, there is a sandbox built into GhostScript to make sure that you know, if you are parsing various PostScript files, you can run it in a sandbox so that it can't do things like access files on your you know, computer or you know, do other uh, commands and that kind of thing. And uh, as we keep finding there are various ways to bypass this. And this was another one of those. Uh, it should be noted, this doesn't affect the newest versions of GhostScript where they actually rewrote this sandbox to be a lot safer but older versions are affected. And so yeah, the versions that we do ship in Ubuntu are older ones that we then keep uh, backporting patches to. And yeah, so, so that has been fixed though for GhostScript. We updated PostgreSQL common. So this is a Debian specific package that is used for doing clustering and that kind of thing with Postgres. And it contains a bunch of different helpers as a result. One of them is uh, the PG control cluster command. And there was a possible privilege escalation that you could do with this through arbitrary directory creation. And uh, this is an interesting one to investigate. In fact, what uh, happens there is that you can uh, set in the Postgres configuration file a path to uh, the stats temporary directory. And so Postgres will go and create that as the Postgres user. And uh, the reporter found a very interesting way that you can combine that with sudo to end up getting a code execution as root. And what sudo does is it goes, when it runs, it goes to load a bunch of different plugins. And one of the paths that it looks for this is in uh, user lib sudo haswell. And so you can create this directory then as Postgres by specifying this as the stats temporary directory in the configuration. And so sudo when it starts, uh, sorry, as so Postgres when it starts, will go and create that directory for you. Then uh, to actually get, say, sudo to do something, you then need to put a uh, like a plugin essentially into that, so a .so that sudo will load. And because sudo is running as root, you can then uh, you know do whatever you want in there, spawn a root shell, whatever you like, because sudo has gone and loaded that code. And so as the Postgres user, if you have access to that, then you can go and put that in there and sudo will happily do that the next time it's run and you will get root uh, code execution as a result. So yeah, an interesting vulnerability. Uh, the reason this happens is because these helpers are, uh, or you know, they run as root, and so you know they have that ability to you know, create that directory. Uh, so yeah, that was fixed by essentially just dropping privileges in this uh, helper program to make sure that you know, it doesn't create that as uh, as root. So yeah, an interesting one there. And finally, just two more to go. We updated MySQL. So 29 different CVEs were fixed here for uh, Xenial, Bionic, Disco, and Eowyn. Uh, in this case, these are updating to the latest stable point releases for those. So in uh, Eowyn, we updated to 8.0.18 and in Xenial, Bionic and Disco, we updated to 5.7.28. Uh, 
and as I say, 29 different CVEs, a lot of different things there. Uh, I've got links in the show notes to those, uh, more, more details on those updates if you want to uh, look into the vulnerabilities that were fixed there as well. And finally, the last one is in Python ECDSA. So two different CVEs that were fixed for Xenial, Bionic, Disco, and Eowyn. Uh, in this case, there were had some issues in the handling of DER encoded signatures. It would fail to verify them properly, so you could get you know essentially an invalid signature being uh, seen as valid. But you could also get the case where it would raise exceptions unexpectedly if a signature were valid. So then you could get a denial of service as a result as well. So they were all fixed for Python ECDSA, and that is it for the week's roundup of security fixes. As I mentioned at the start, Joe and I had a chat this week about how to get into InfoSec. Hey Joe, how's things? Things are great. We just got back from our uh, roadmap sprint where we all met as a most of a company and decided what we're going to do that'll make it into the next LTS, so 2004, Focal Fosai. Cool. And uh, so you're well-rested now, Joe? Or I would say it's the opposite of well-rested because it's yep. non-stop meetings for, for like... 12 hours a day, but um, it's super great because we get so much done. But uh, we're, um, we're all excited to get all these features in. And uh, one thing that happened when we were there is some folks in other departments kind of asked, hey, how did, how did you get into information security? And if I wanted to get into it, you know, what should I do? So I think that's what we're going to talk about today, right, Alex? Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, so I guess... Um I don't know. Uh, from my perspective, uh, I think that um, to, to get into information security now is uh, a really good time, right? Um, in particular, with the nature of various bug bounty platforms, there's a lot of things you can kind of do and kind of play around in your own time and learn on your own time. Uh, if you particularly don't, you know, maybe you're already um, a software engineer or I don't know, a manager or something like that in um uh, you know, in computers already. So you've got some skills, but you're not really into InfoSec. You know, there's a, a lot of things you can do there to kind of learn in your own way. You don't necessarily need to go and, you know, do a information security degree back at university or something like that. Yeah, I think, you know, the like to be good in information security, you need to have a well-rounded, I'll say computer science foundation. Um, and that th that's to say, you know, you should understand uh, what a sysadmin does and how to deploy boxes because a lot of information security is securing those um, deployments and securing those boxes and understanding CICD, right? But then you also need to understand how to write software because if you run you know, a tool like Coverity or you run Nessus or something like that and you get back um, a list of bugs and you can't speak to why this thing is implemented poorly, you're not going to be really good, right? I mean, sure, you can be an auditor, but without understanding what you could do to fix it, I don't think you're you're truly effective as a security person. So, you know, get some Python books and learn how to do some Python. You don't have to be an expert in Java or C. I mean, obviously you should be able to write a little code in those, but once you're familiar in one of those languages, you can pretty, actually, once you're good in one of those languages, you can write things in basically all of them given enough time. And so looking at a report about how something you can uninitialize something or another, you can, you can follow up with that with the developer um, and speak authoritatively to it. Um, and then I think lastly, you have, well, I guess I'm going to add a fourth thing to it. But before my, so second to lastly, um, you should really understand um, network engineering. 
Um, under, you know, I do find a lot of people don't understand how networks work. So understand um, VLANs and ACLs and uh, network isolation and basic routing, um, routing and switching. That stuff that is, is really key to security, but a lot of people sort of kind of wave their hands when it comes around um, network engineering. So you need to, to play with that. And actually now is a great time with things like OpenRyU and OpenVSwitch. You can play with all that stuff at home with software-defined networking. If you've got a Raspberry Pi, you can create, um, you know, get some, get a bunch of different um, Ethernet uh, to USB adapters and create a switch and, you know, do routing with that. But that really helps. And then the last thing, which many people shy away from because I think it's the most boring, but actually it has one of the biggest impacts on an organization. It's actually policy. So, yep, but no, this is a the Ubuntu security podcast and we, we nerd out on technical things. But you can make all the security recommendations and um, tell people what to do or what not to do and implement networks. But if you don't have a corporate policy that takes that into account, and I'll say, for lack of a better term, has your back, um, then they don't go anywhere. So understanding effective policy and how to work with other groups. And I mean, geez, that's one part of it too. Like you're going to talk to sysadmins. You're going to talk to developers. You're going to talk to network engineers, business people. Understand a bit how a company makes money. Understand how network engineers do what they do because then you can speak to them effectively. Also, your security decisions can have an impact on how they do their day-to-day job. So understand what they do so you can have a minimum impact on how they get things done while having the maximum impact on securing things in your network. Um, So, you know, do some hackathons, grab some um, Raspberry Pis, you know, set up VirtualBox, Lexi, et cetera, and install things, you know, um, get the free license for Nessus and scan your environment at home um, and just get super involved and nerd out on technology and think like an attacker. And then you'll think like how, how, how you can protect it like a security person. Um, how do you feel about certifications for security professionals, Alex? Uh, I'm into uh, minds about that. I think that a lot of the certifications are a bit of a, um, they can be kind of simplistic, but at the same time, it does set a good baseline, you know, and if you're um, particularly starting out and you can use that as a good way to get a, a good grounding, I guess, of a lot of things at once. But um, I I don't know, I, I wouldn't hire someone just because they had a certification or not, but I think that if... Um, it, it does add weight, obviously, to, you know, a resume or, you know, someone's credentials, right, to have that kind of thing. But it's certainly not a, uh, you must have it without a, you know, without a doubt. I would value um, experience and, you know, being able to demonstrate that you are a, a critical thinker and things like that over a certification probably. Yeah, I think you're, you know, getting out, if you have, if you have no experience, um, then maybe getting like I think it's at the OSCP. That's from the folks who make Kali Linux. Yep. Um, they have that. I think that's um, then it's pretty cool. I mean, it wouldn't. It's not necessarily going to get you hired, but it's going to get you exposed to a ton of things. Um, now the Cloud Security Alliance has a free book you can use to take. It's a free ebook. It's like 300 pages, which you can study and then take their exam, which I think is 150 or 250 dollars. Uh, and that seems like a really neat thing because cloud security is super important. Um, but that's kind of where. I see the end of value. Maybe if you were doing forensics, there are some forensic certifications that would be useful. I think SANS offers like, is it the GIAC? The um, something, 
government information assurance. I'm not really sure what GX stands for, but they've got that, which you can pass. Um, and then I know initially you had said you don't have to go back to university, but if you're thinking about it, um, you know, I, I never would tell someone not to get more education because it's always useful. There's a whole lot of programs, I think, now that are growing uh, around information security. I would always ask that you look at the program and find out how much is hands-on because you don't need to go to school to learn how to run Nessus. You need to go to school to make sure you understand the code and the technology behind it to make sure it's well-rounded with coding as well as policy and um, and business. Because uh, I've seen some that sort of pump out auditors and to me, that's that's not worth your time. You can pick that up by reading some books. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, you made a really good point earlier, actually, Joe, about policy. I don't know. Um, yes, we do like nerding out about technical things on this, and policy generally is not technical, but it is uh, a crucial part of making uh, organizations secure. Right? Um, anyone can can secure, uh, yeah, with knowledge, anyone can secure a machine. But when it comes to managing, you know, a huge array of different things and you know, being able to track what you've got and making sure that things are consistent, you know, you need policy to define that and you need everyone kind of on on your side with that. And I know that um, particularly in the startup world and things like that, these things are kind of, um, I don't know, shied away from and seen as like just getting in the way of people letting, you know, getting their work done. But uh, that is the way that you make sure that you actually have a defensible uh, system and a defensible network, right? By you know, creating that so that you've got a, a strong baseline to work from. Yeah, and startups are really good. I'm, I'm glad you said the word startup because if you get in early with the startup and make security part of what that company is, it'll be much better than two years down the line when they're making big enough sales and decide to hire a security person and then you've got to jam security into two years of startup code um so i've i've definitely been in that spot and it's not as fun as building it in from the beginning it's always challenges that are fun too but um i think nowadays when you're trying to get those sales to bigger companies they're going to ask you about your hey can you share your secure coding guidelines can you share your acceptable use policy etc etc um oh i was gonna say you know and and you talk about uh policy alex as we both have now but one really important thing in security don't be a jerk. I've met a lot of security people that let the power of stopping people from deploying something or um, bringing up their laptop in this VLAN or that Wi-Fi, etc. Don't, don't do that. You know, y- you want to be an enabler. You want people in the group, in the company to come to you and ask in the beginning, how can we make this better? And that is a key part of being successful at security. If you are seen as a roadblock, people will find ways around you. Don't encourage people to work around security. Let people know you are there to help. Be knowledgeable in the different subjects. If you solely aren't knowledgeable in every single aspect of it, make sure the people on the team that you can ask. You know, we've got great people on the team who are way better at kernel security than I will ever be. And I'm gonna defer to them, right? Um, So just be nice, enable people, be willing to work with them, and you know, get some empathy for what they're doing, right? They've got deadlines, they've got priorities, and if you work with them, security won't be, I'll say, pushed aside while they're trying to you know, include more features to get out that version. They'll make sure one of those features is security. Yeah, definitely. I think that um, yeah, that culture side of things is really important. As you said, security should be seen as an enabler. You know, um, to take, you know, to go back to a technical example, you know, we often talk about um, people disabling SE Linux and things like that, right? And so if you're, if you are that kind of um, 
you don't want that to be you, right? You don't want to be, as you said, a roadblock for people. You want to be an enabler. You want to help them get their jobs done and you want to help them get them done in a secure way because that's going to obviously be the best outcome for everyone. And so, like you said, people will always find ways. You know, engineers are smart. And they like solving problems and they will find ways to work around you if they have to. You know, they would go and deploy that system without telling you even about it, you know, if they have to, um, particularly in this modern DevOps world. And that's clearly not going to create a secure environment. So, like you said, yeah, be an enabler. Uh, be nice <laughs> cool yeah so awesome so like we said you know you want to get in security don't just be a hacker be a hacker who understands how sysadmins work how network engineers work how coders work code some stuff buy some books read some online blogs and then when you feel like you could you could start not only breaking into stuff but then protecting it and then you know um, actually now I said breaking into stuff I want to say this when you're learning don't break into anything that's not in your internal home network or one of your virtual machines, right? Um, don't. It's not gonna. It's not a good idea to go shaking other companies, you know, doorknobs and seeing if you can get in. That's they're not gonna hire you because you found out a, you found a cross-site scripting vulnerability on their website. Um, that, that's not that's not how this industry works right now. So unless um, you do it through a bug bounty, so if yes, they are part of a bug bounty and it is within the scope of terms for their bug bounty. You know, go hard, do that stuff because that yeah. um, is a good way for you maybe to earn some money on the side too. But like, yes, like you said, Joe, um, be respectful of uh, other people's machines and yeah, don't be uh, don't be prying where you shouldn't be. Yeah, awesome. Well, hey, um, if you're interested in getting into this field, you know, keep an eye out on um, the uh, careers page on Ubuntu.com and Canonical.com. We're always hiring folks. Sometimes we're hiring um, junior people. Um, because we'd like to take a chance on you and work and make sure you can learn all sorts of skills to make Ubuntu more secure. And um, if you have questions about you know how Alex or I got into security, um, you can just you know give us a note on Twitter or send me an email on securityjoe at um, canonical.com. Uh, let us know, and we'll talk to you next week. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. Speak to you soon. All right, that takes us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks again, everyone, for listening for another week. As usual, if you want to get in contact with the team, you can reach us via email at security.ubuntu.com. Or we have the Ubuntu Hardened mailing list if you want a more public uh, way of discussing with us via email. We also have the Ubuntu Hardened IRC channel on uh, on the Freenode IRC network. Uh, There is also our security section on discourse.ubuntu.com. And finally, we are on Twitter as at Ubuntu underscore sec. And we'd love to hear uh, any feedback you've got or, I guess, any comments about security or questions. Uh, Yes, feel free to send them our way. So thanks again for listening for another week. Uh, Remember, until next time, keep calm and enable automated upgrades, and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.